Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tell me, what does Tupac Amaru Shakur mean? I was named after this Inca chief from South America whose name was Tupac Amaru. And I think the tribal breakdown means, like, intelligent, warrior, something like that. But he's a deep dude. It's the 90s. It's Los Angeles. And a 25-year-old from New York is one of the biggest stars in hip-hop. He mixed street vocabulary with a poetic narrative style. He'd been a jazz student. He said Shakespeare was an influence. And he became famous right round the world. But in 1996, a little before midnight, on the 7th of September, at a busy intersection, he was shot. The rapper was shot inside of a BMW while stopped at a red light on Koval and Flamingo. He then died six days later. No one has ever been arrested for Tupac's murder. That is, until now, 27 years later. My name is Kevin McMahill. I'm the sheriff of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. We are here today to announce the arrest of 60-year-old Dwayne Keith Davis, a.k.a. Keefe D, for the murder of Tupac Shakur. How on earth did it take 27 years for someone to be arrested? What new information came to light, if any? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, will the mystery of Tupac's death finally be solved? Hi, I'm William Shaw. I write crime fiction, but back in the 90s, I was a journalist for American magazines, writing a lot about hip-hop. And what took you to the Beverly Hills Hotel in 1990-what? Well, that would have been 95. I was 
working for this magazine, I got really interested in West Coast hip hop because I, I kind of realised that a lot of the stories that we took as ridiculous exaggerations, they weren't exaggerations. Horrendous things were happening in some of those inner city urban cities, especially amongst the African-American population. And actually, this was a type of storytelling. And I thought that was really interesting. So I would, would always put myself forward if there was somebody in hip hop to be interviewed. And if I close my eyes and picture the Beverly Hills Hotel, what am I looking at? You're looking at a ridiculous confection. You are looking at a kind of Eagles album cover of a hotel. It was the most surreal situation because Tupac had just come out of this prison and it's a horrendous, horrendous place. I mean, it really is a brutal, it looks like a sort of Victorian mess of a prison, really, really horrible level of, of violence within the prison itself. And now I was sitting to this guy in this really plush hotel and, you know, like there was Emma Thompson sitting at the table next to us. It was just like this ridiculous sort of change. We're very conscious that, that for Tupac Shakur, this was a, a very strange environment to be in. But of course, he felt perfectly happy there. Let's rewind on Tupac's life story. He wasn't always lunching with journalists in the Beverly Hills Hotel. Where was he from and how did he actually end up in, in L.A.? Tupac was, was a really interesting character. I mean, his mother was this black activist, Afeni Shakur, who pretty much brought him up single-handedly, uh, moved him out of New York when he was young to, to Baltimore. It was she imagined would be a better place to, to raise him. He'd gone to high school there. Sounds like quite a formidable woman, former Black Panther activist uh, and the rest. Yeah, I mean, that was one of his biggest tracks ever, Dear Mama. I mean, that was um, about gratitude for his mother bringing him up. Sounded quite sentimental and sugary in some ways, but actually it was a very sincere kind of, really, thank you. I finally understand for a woman it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed, a poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it, there's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Now, the problem was Afeni Shakur had been through a lot herself. She became a bit of a drug addict, and she was living with this drug addict at the time called Legs. And to all extents and purposes, Tupac had no reason to think Legs wasn't his dad. And Legs certainly acted as his dad. But when he was a teenager, Legs died of a heart attack. And so he assumed he was fatherless. And it was later in life, actually, he learned that this other guy was his, his real father, who'd been a former Black Panther himself. He, he was this amazing ability to talk very directly in lyrics, but he was very upfront. You know, if you ask them a question, they would answer it. And he, he did find the thing of growing up fatherless very disturbing. And he think it, it, it affected his whole sort of sense of aggression and his whole need to prove himself. Because he very much felt that if he had had a proper father around, he wouldn't have needed to prove himself all the time. So I actually talked to him about this track, The Streets of Death Row, about that sense of fatherlessness, because he has this lyric, nobody knew how deep it screwed me. Since my pops never knew me, my family didn't know what to do with me. And he told me that directly when I was saying, why do you have to always prove yourself? So, well, I don't know. I mean, why do I grind my teeth? Why am I always angry? You know, I ended up meeting a lot of young people who were hip hop fans. And, you know, a lot of them had that narrative. There was a real epidemic of fatherlessness, partly because of the massive, massive incarceration rates and the violence, you know, 
I mean, that was one of the things that I ended up writing about, really. It's like you have this incredibly disturbed generation because of violence, because of drugs. A huge great... I mean, if you think about it, the real victims of violence in the 90s were young black men. So they had a lot of things to work through as a generation, and they did a lot of that through their lyrics. But obviously they were in situations of, of quite extreme poverty and violence. And yet, though, despite all of those pressures and that really challenging upbringing he becomes this incredible success. I mean, how do you account for that when so many other people were crushed by those pressures? In, in some ways, I think, though his background was tough, he came from an extraordinary background and he kind of felt like... I mean, it's called Tupac. He was named after an Inca god. So he, he kind of was told he was special from a young age. And I think that kind of helped. You know, he's part of that lot of young men growing up with a new sort of black consciousness that you are special, you must do something, you know, and I think that that was on his shoulders as well. He was a bright boy. He did really well at school. He, he was in drama groups. You know, he was a successful actor as well, which we tend to forget about. Uh, and did he stand out from the pack in any way? I mean, in terms of subject matter, lyrical ability, style? I think it's directness. Hip hop was very East Coast, West Coast at the time. You have to go back to the history of hip hop. Hip hop had always been a New York art form until the um, early 90s. It had always only been New York was a kind of allowed to produce hip hop. And then suddenly this group came out of Los Angeles NWA. And they had a completely different style. They used to just tell stories and they didn't do fancy wordplay. They just said, hey, I'm, in, I'm from Compton. What's up? Tell them where you're from. Straight out of Compton. And that directs, and I think he, t he took on that sort of stuff. He took, rather than do the kind of lyrical wordplay of the sort of East Coast stuff, he was far more direct. And I think his directness really helped him because it cut through a lot. The other thing you have to say is he was extraordinarily charismatic because he was also kind of gorgeous. You talk to any women from the time. They <laughs> Shouldn't be underestimated. <laughs> yeah, they were, he was probably the best looking hip hop star of his era, if not all of them. I mean, people still swoon over those photographs of a sort of 23-year-old, 24-year-old Tupac. But what kind of an environment was he operating in? Los Angeles in the 90s. We, we always hear stories about how dangerous and, and violent it was. But w w when you were there reporting and writing about it, what was, what was the situation? You have to go back and realise why the Los Angeles South Central ghetto was so toxic. It's a long bit of history. It goes back to the sort of 1930s, 40s, 50s, when all that black population moved to the South to work in the shipyards and to, to build the cars. But the whites didn't want them there. So basically they got forced into this tiny little ghetto. They created all kinds of Jim Crow laws to make sure they were just in this tiny little enclave. And so that was a sort of like pressure cooker already. You think the Watts riots were one of the first big riots in America of, of sort of so-called race riots. It began with the arrest by white officers of the California Highway Patrol and their mother who lives nearby came to the scene. There was an argument, there was a scuffle. By then a crowd of several hundred gathered the story of police brutality quickly spread through the community. People were angry there. They didn't have proper schooling. They didn't have proper health care. All that sort of stuff that happens in ghettos because the fabric of society falls apart. The literal fabric of the place falls apart when it's so overpopulated. And all those things happened in South Central. But on top of that, rivalry between neighbourhoods was built in. All the neighbourhoods were kind of vying with each other for space. And if you go back historically... The neighbourhoods all came from the places in the south. If you came from Alabama and you moved to Los Angeles, you probably lived with other people from that same town. So you had that idea of the block being yours. And that, mm. that whole word homeboy, I think, is really interesting because originally it appears to meant the boy from back home. And that made that environment very toxic, you know, especially once you've got drugs came in and that built the gangs 
And out of that just came this horrendously high murder rate. I mean, like 1992, it was like 800 and something gang-related deaths in Los Angeles County just in a year. That's an eye-watering figure of murders in a relatively small geography. The 20-year-old is dead. He was pronounced this morning at 4.30. And the other victim, the survivor, uh, was shot in the head. Just another typical day in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department gang unit. The walls are filled with photos of dead gang members, and there's room for more. So everybody I met there, without fail, if they were a young African-American person, knew somebody and was close to somebody who had died in violence. It was just that simple. Everybody you met had a story. And Tupac's involvement in this, in terms of us understanding actually how he came to be killed, we do need to understand about where he, he sits in that gang geography and how he became affiliated with, with it in the first place. Well, he joined, he joined this label called Death Row Records. And Death Row Records had been set up by a guy called Suge Knight as an independent label. Now, Suge Knight was an interesting guy. I mean, he's currently incarcerated on a manslaughter charge. He grew up in an area which belonged to a gang called the Mob Pyrus and their bloods. Everybody's kind of heard of that polarity of Los Angeles gangs of Crips and Bloods. They were known as Colours Gangs. You divide by neighbourhood, but you also divide by colour. And there were two colours, red and blue, and Bloods had the red scarves and Crips had the blue scarves. And there was that simple level of identification. If you're a Blood, you are theoretically against all Crips, but you might also be against all some Blood gangs as well. You know, it wasn't even mm. that simple. The loyalties were complex and ever-shifting. But he was, he was affiliated with this gang called the Mob Pyros, and as he got money and power through his label, he began to become more, more and more close to them. People say he was never a real hard gangbanger. And I think that's nearly always true. We, you know, a lot of these people who get into hip hop weren't the real gangbangers because gangbanging is a full time occupation. But it, you basically still express your affiliations. And what's more, you pay money to the gang for some protection. So Death Row Records had bodyguards who are from the Mob Pyro gang and they were just around all, all the time. So when Tupac joined the label, he never came out as being affiliated with them. He never said things that were before them. But the people who were looking after him were from that gang. And he sort of had a debt of gratitude to them. Completely. I mean, what happened is he had been in prison on a charge of sexual assault. He'd always denied it, but he'd been convicted in it. When he was desperate for an appeal, but he didn't have the money, Suge Knight put up the money to bail him out for pending appeal. And that's why he was sitting in that restaurant in Los Angeles with me, because Suge Knight had paid the money to get him out of jail. Now, at that point... He's madly grateful for Suge Knight. And it's, you know, I think in lots of ways he looked up to Suge Knight at the beginning as this great man who could show how black people could help each other. You know, the worst thing that happens to people like me is he's playing me tracks and I never really understand the significance of them later. And he played me this track, California Love, and it was really sort of big, big, big track. You know, that was out on bail, fresh out of jail, California Dreaming. And he was literally on bail when I met him. That was the thing. You know, he was there saying, here I am. He was loving that kind of life, driving around in an open-top cars and people shouting his name as he drove past because, you know, they love a star in Los Angeles and he was yeah. very adept at being the star. I mean, I take the point that he wasn't a fully signed-up, active gang member and promoter, but was it laced through his music anyway? 
It's very easy to see the gangs as just these terrible drug dealers, but they protected neighbourhoods. Believe it or not, there were positive sides to them, and I think he identified with some of that. But it was also about a type of machismo, which I think in that thing about being fatherlessness and needing to know who he was as a man, this was a kind of manhood. I mean, the gangs were male. He tattooed thug life on his chest. And and I think that's sort of like, yeah, I kind of like this kind of attitude of maleness where you won't give us stuff, we will take it. He had been shot himself. You know, there's this track, hit him up. And he's actually talking about that incident in that and about how he'll revenge that incident. You know, who shot me? Grab your glocks when you see Tupac. Call the cops when you see Tupac. Who shot me? Grab your glocks when you see Tupac. Call the cops when you see Tupac. And, you know, that doesn't dial things down. He was dialing things up constantly. So this track, Life Goes On, and, you know, he's talking about that whole sense of violence. People around him being shot, that's about remembering other people who died in, in violence. And it ends out thug till I die. And it's that whole thug life thing, you know, that he's going to be up there protecting these people or protecting their reputation, ironically. So to return to you and Tupac in the Beverly Hills Hotel, I mean, you don't just stay there chatting over a dressed crab. You you go for a, a drive with him. Yeah, he wanted to take me to play any tracks from the album. And Tarzana, the studio, which was the one that Death Row had, is, is quite a way away from there. So he said he'd drive me. Mm. And he's got this great car, which I presume Suge Knight had given him, because Suge Knight gave him... Everything at that time, you know, he didn't have, yeah, his income was entirely based on it. Like, I later met him at his apartment that Suge Knight had rented for him and stuff like that, which was a very fancy apartment. But at the time, he had this fantastic open top Jaguar. So there was I driving through through the streets of of Los Angeles with with Tupac. And quite a funny thing happened at that point because, you know, we were at the traffic lights and and the car backfired and he flinched. And I can remember talking to him about that later. You know, this guy had been badly shot 18 months earlier. And, um, he had PTSD. I mean, it was kind of blindingly obvious he had PTSD. He, w- he was willing to admit it. We talked about it, but he said, yeah, when, th- mm. when I hear loud noises, I flinch. And who had sort of accepted a level of fatalism in his life. The really ironic thing was that, you know, when I, when I was there and he was being the charming in amongst the, the overwhelmingly white sort of um, culture of the Beverly Hills Hotel, he was quoting Robert Frost to me. And he quoted, nothing gold can stay, which is really about beautiful things disappearing. And, you know, in retrospect, you realise he was probably talking about himself. But when we talked about that incident, when he he got quite sort of morose, really, saying, no, I'm going to die. Somebody's going to kill me. All black men who try and achieve something are killed. And at the time, I can remember thinking, you know, me being a sort of white geeky bloke, thinking, well, he's just, this is all sounding a bit much. You know, he's really exaggerating here. This is just a kind of a male performance. And it clearly wasn't. And I was wrong. Coming up, the arrest, 27 years on. Who is he? And why are the police acting now? That's just in a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So last week, William, we, we had the situation where there was this breakthrough in the case of, of Tupac's murder. A man was arrested. Explain who he is. This is a guy called Dwayne Davis. Now, Mob Piru's one of their biggest enemies was a gang called the Southside Crips. They both come from the so-called city of Compton. It's not a huge sort of place in, in Los Angeles, but they come from sort of different ends of it. And these were long-term enemies. And um, Dwayne Davis was a big figure in this gang. He was a very successful drug dealer at the time, which gave him a great deal of power as, as a gang leader at the time. And in the days leading up to Tupac's murder, you, you say that the that Mob Pyros and the Southside Crips had this rivalry. That was on show with an incident. There's a place called Lakewood, another little place, and there's a shopping mall there in Los Angeles. And they're sort of teenagers. One of them, you know, them had gone to buy some new sports uniform and they discovered other members of the gang and, and as they generally do they kind of faced off now the pyrus at the time had become very closely as- associated with death row records and a lot of them wore death row pendants big expensive glittery gold pendants with death row on them mm. and during this scuffle one of those pendants was stolen and that's kind of a big thing you know your gold chain is kind of your your wealth your personality and to, sh- to take that as a way so it's not only insulting um, the mob pyros, they were insulting death row records as well. At this point, the lines become blurred. The label and the gang become kind of the same thing. And um, one of the people who was supposedly there was a young Southside Crip called Orlando Anderson. And he was always put down as a really bad gang member. But everybody I spoke to there said, no, he's a sweet kid. He did really well at high school. He was not a typical gang member. So there was this incident in a mall in LA. Forward wind a few days, weeks, we're in Las Vegas at the MGM Hotel and Tupac and Shugs are there to watch a Mike Tyson fight. Yeah, they watch the Mike Tyson fight. The fight only lasts like two or three minutes. It's, it's a straight, quick knockout. Yeah. Everybody's really pumped up. Tupac's walking through the lobby with Shug Knight and the whole entourage, which include obviously members of the, the Pyrus. And um, they spot Orlando Anderson in the lobby and one of them says to Tupac, hey, that's the guy who snatched so-and-so's chain. Whether he was or not, is, is up for debate. But Tupac marches straight over to him and he says, you from the South. Ask this guy who it was. And then he punches him in the head and knocks him to the floor. And the whole lot of them, including Suge Knight, get round and they start beating this guy up. Fight only lasts a very short space of time because all the security come in, they break it up, everybody moves on. But that guy is Orlando Anderson. Orlando Anderson's mm. actually the nephew of that gang leader, Keefe D. 
what's come a lot more clearer now is that Keefe D takes this as a massive personal insult to the Southside Crips. And when you say Keefe D, you mean oh, sorry, Dwayne yeah, Davis? Dwayne Davis. Dwayne Keefe D Davis, that's kind of how he's referred to. And obviously takes this as a massive, massive assault on his prestige and his, his manhood. The extraordinary thing is we didn't really know all this that explicitly until about four or five years ago. But suddenly Keefe D started actually admitting to the chain of events. Before, it was mired in a certain amount of confusion because people don't talk this stuff, obviously, out loud very much because they're scared yeah. to. But suddenly, Keefe D, for, for no good reason, starts telling, you know, he gave an interview to the police, he gave an interview to a, a cable channel. Next year, he writes a book just saying, yeah, I was furious. I got everybody together, including Orlando Anderson, got three cars together. I, I got a gun. And he admits he got a Glock 40, which is the gun that killed Tupac. He jumps into cars and they go around looking for Tupac and Suge Knight. They eventually find him at this junction. Tupac's leaning out of a car, talking to a couple of women. All the chicks was like, Tupac, Tupac. And he was like, hey, like a celebrity, like he was in a parade. He's the star. He likes talking to women. Women like talking to him. But he's leaning out of the car, so he's exposed. He wouldn't even been out the window. We would have never seen him. He's the one who gets shot. Whether we're trying to shoot him or Suge, I'm not entirely sure, but, you know, he gets shot. He dies six days later. So that we know that it was the car Dwayne Davis was in. And we know that Orlando Anderson was in that car. But who shot, who shot him, I still don't really know. Keefe D's kind of pointed the finger at his nephew at saying Orlando did it. And that's the rub, isn't it? So even though he's been arrested, he's just been arrested because he was party to the murder it seems, that there were other people in the car. I mean, what's become of them? Could any of them be next in terms of arrests? Well, there were four people in the car. Two of them died. One of natural causes. One of them died in a completely unrelated bit of drug violence a few years ago. Orlando Anderson himself was killed in a gunfight, allegedly a fight between um, Southside Crips and another Crip gang, the Corner Pocket Crips. Um... His friends always say that he was he was terrified. The moment he'd been identified as somebody who potentially killed Tupac, he went everywhere armed. But the point is, is that Dwayne Keefe D. Davis is the only one who was in that car who is still alive. Yeah, and he he organised it, you know, which is as close as, as we'll ever get. He, without a shadow of doubt, organised the murder of Tupac Shakur. And under Nevada law, because if remember this happened in, in Vegas, that means he can be arrested and, and charged with murder because he was yeah, it's, there. It's, well, I mean, we'd call it joint enterprise here, wouldn't we? Yeah. Has this latest twist been entirely down to Dwayne Keefe Dees Davis's sort of chassiness in, in, in recent years? Is that why this is happening? Well, uh, as far as I can work out, yes. I mean, like, I'm sure we're going to find out more as the trial goes on. But I mean, what astonishes me. If you go back to the initial investigations, both by Los Angeles police and Nevada police, they were incredibly flawed. And it, it's taken a long time for them to get to this place. You know, the Shakur family and things like that have you know, always been very angry at the, the level of incompetence, really, in, in those investigations. And it strikes me as really weird that he said it was saying this stuff absolutely explicitly in print four years ago, and it's taken them four years you know, it was, took them four years to get round to searching his house in Nevada in, when they did the raid that's, that triggered all this. And I can only assume that, like most American police, they're very, very wary of celebrity-type cases. You know, they know they can blow up in their faces.
Yes, so maybe that can account for them taking their time on it. And do you see this as mystery solved? I think to a large extent it is. I mean, those who don't really know about this don't know the level of conspiracy theory that surrounded Tupac's murder. I mean, people really accused it of being a, a hit by other hip-hop labels on Tupac. I mean, there's even this theory that he's actually not dead. He's still with us. But, you know, hopefully a lot of that is being put to rest. The one thing that, I, you know, I still hold some mystery is everybody I spoke to about Orlando said he was a really sweet guy caught up in this. Now... Were they telling me the truth? I don't know. Orlando was the person who everybody assumes pulled the trigger. Maybe he was leaned on by his uncle to pull the trigger. I had no idea. I'd love to know what really happened in that car in those few minutes. How do you look back on this era? Do you see it as a as a completely different foreign time? And is there still echoes though of all of this in in the in the cultural output of this? I think we're in a very different place, really. Now, South Central is no longer an African-American ghetto. Everybody who could get out got out of there. They don't even call it South Central anymore. They kind of rebranded it as South Los Angeles. So that time has very much moved on. And I think the time that created that culture has moved on. What's extraordinary is like, I remember hip hop arriving and being told that every year it was was just a flash in the pan. Well, it's one of one of the most fundamental global cultures, hasn't it? And it's it's really one that, that is proud of its history and has a narrative. And, and this is definitely part of the narrative. And the narrative, you know, starts with all those sort of DJs like Cool Herc in the Bronx. Tupac is in there as the kind of successful end of that kind of real narrative type of hip hop. You have been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, crime writer and journalist, William Shaw. The producers were Sam Chantarasak and Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is where you can reach us anytime for feedback, ideas, questions, faint praise even. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.